the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us online at danproftshow.com. You can get all the podcasts there as well as on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show, both Facebook and Twitter, Proft Dan, uh, Instagram, and uh, also Dan Proft on social media. I uh, uh, wanted to start with uh, all that transpired yesterday into today with respect to uh, Trump's putting down a marker as well as in the wee hours of this morning, Wednesday morning, Congress putting down a $6 trillion marker. But uh, Trump's marker first, his uh, note of optimism, his desire, we mentioned on the show yesterday, talked about it, about uh, him being antsy. Uh, talked about Andrew Cuomo, who's uh, the eye of the storm, him being antsy, raising the question at his briefing on Tuesday as to uh, uh, getting the getting people back to work, getting the economy rolling again. This is not a sustainable path. Uh, so uh, President Trump putting his marker down suggesting that April 12th into the Easter weekend which is a good date. Three weeks from now, perhaps we can really start to amp things back up. And that started, of course, with his Fox News virtual town hall, Bill Hemmer interviewing him. You, you said that we would, I'm paraphrasing now, you would like to be back to normal by Easter Sunday. Yes. That's 19 days from now. It's okay. Is that true? Is that possible? Or is I that think false it's possible. Out? Why isn't it? I mean, we've never closed the country before, and we've had some pretty bad flus, and we've had some pretty bad viruses, and I think it's absolutely possible. Now, people are going to have to practice all of the uh, social distancing and don't shake hands and wash your hands and all of the things that we're doing now, but we have to get our country back to work. Our country wants to be back at work. And uh, this was interesting, and this will probably, I'll bet you dollars to donuts, that this will not be covered by most other shows or media outlets. The follow-up question that Hammer asked, the follow-up question he asked of Dr. Deborah Burks, the infectious disease specialist, the opportunity he presented to her and how she, how she took it. This is important. Do you agree, essentially, is what Hammer asked right after President Trump finished his answer. Do you agree with President Trump? Is April 12th realistic? I think what's really important is a lot of what we've done is we've tackled this epidemic the way people said we should have tackled flu in 1918. And they compared St. Louis, who took this kind of approach, to Philadelphia. What we're trying to do now is use 21st century solutions and trying to get data down to the most granular level so we understand what's happening at the area of the spread. So even today there are counties throughout the United States that don't have their first case. So our job is to make sure they never have their first case 
and ensure that our efforts are focused on where the virus is expanding. That can be done today because we have that level of granularity. So that's what the president has asked us to put together, to use these two weeks to get all the data from around the country and all the data from around the globe. Why is that, why, why is that so important, Dan? Uh, she didn't agree with the president. She didn't say anything about it exactly. Didn't address it at all. Why? Because it's not her lane. You know what her lane is? Combating the spread of the disease, bringing her expertise to bear to make the best recommendations to President Trump and the other policymakers to combat the spread of the disease. And the president has to take in her information, her recommendations, Tony Fauci's recommendations, along with the recommendations of economists and the recommendations of uh, FEMA with respect to distribution channels and HHS with respect to testing and make executive decisions where there are competing interests and no easy decision is to be had. And Dr. Burks is being a team player there, team member, rather than taking the bait of a press corps that's more interested in trying to sow division than extract value for their viewers or readers. Just a note there, because we're going to get to more of that with Tony Fauci, who gave an interesting interview to a, a local radio station in D.C. yesterday as well. But, but uh, so the, the Easter thing which got uh, so many who are out of sorts, as a matter of course, out of sorts again. Trump, of course, at the evening briefing a few hours later, clarified and expanded upon his goal of April 12th of Easter weekend. He hasn't mandated it. It's not going to happen. He's hopeful. He's trying to imbue some optimism into the body politic. Is that such a bad thing? Particularly given the trajectory in most states, not named New York or Washington. Easter is a very special day for many reasons. For me, for a lot of of our friends, that's a very special day. And what a great timeline this would be. Easter is our timeline. What a great timeline that would be. My first priority is always the health and safety of the American people. I want everyone to understand that we are continuing to evaluate the data. We're working with the task force and making decisions based on what is best for the interest of our fantastic country. Also, economists and other professionals working to develop a sophisticated plan to reopen the economy as soon as the time is right, one based on the best science, the best modeling, and the best medical research there is anywhere on Earth. What is, what is unclear about that? Best on the best science, the medical research, the timing. April 12th isn't uh, a hard date. It's an aspirational one. What's wrong with being aspirational during this crisis? Uh, In addition to that, and as uh, more supporting evidence to be aspirational, you had Tony Fauci. Where's Tony Fauci? Where's Tony Fauci? Oh, he's right here at last night's briefing. Tony Fauci addressing a couple of issues, uh, specifically the the specific one I want to zero in on is, well, there's two actually, Dark spots versus hot spots and the, uh, the uh, process of the uh, antiviral clinical trials. Uh, so first, uh, hot, spots versus, hot spots versus dark spots, to borrow from Fauci's vernacular. The other thing is that the areas of the country that are not hot spots, that are not going through the terrible ordeal 
that New York and California and Washington State are going through, they still have a window of significant degree of being able to contain. In other words, when you test, you find somebody, you isolate them, you get them out of circulation, and you do the contact tracing. When you have a big outbreak, it's tough to do anything but mitigation. We have an opportunity now that we have the availability of testing to do that. So you're going to be hearing more about how we can inform where we're going, particularly because we have the ability to test. Right, and containment in those quote-unquote dark spots, uh, that's, a, that's a real opportunity. And uh, coming up, we're going to talk to HHS Secretary Alex Azar about the testing to uh, Dr. Fauci's point. The other uh, thing that he mentioned that I want to make sure to emphasize is uh, about those clinical trials. It's not just the anti-malarial drug, the hydroxychloroquine. It's uh, also a range of other antiviral therapies that are being tested for efficacy. You heard yesterday about drugs being out there that physicians on an off-label way can prescribe it to give people hope of something that hasn't been definitively proven to work, but that might have some hope. I don't want anybody to forget that simultaneously with our doing that, we're also doing randomized clinical trials on a number of candidates. You've heard about candidates, but there are others in the pipeline where we'll be able to design the study, and over a period of time, particularly since we have so many infections, we'll be able to determine definitively, are these safe and are they effective? We're talking about remdesivir, other drugs, immune sera, convalescent sera, monoclonal antibodies. All of these are in the pipeline now, queuing up to be able to go into clinical trial. And it was announced uh, that New York State will be the, uh, this was announced Monday, the first state to test uh, treatment of coronavirus with blood from recovered patients, the convalescent plasma that uh, Fauci just mentioned. And we talked about remdesivir on this show before. That was the drug that was used on a compassionate use basis. Two cases in Washington State where the with two gentlemen who were very sick and remdesivir is believed to be the uh, proximate cause of their recovery. Uh, So uh, that's also occurring. Uh, We'll get to it a little bit later in the show with some of our guests, but I also want to tackle this op-ed from two Stanford medical professors about the lethality of the virus because the media's reporting, as you would suspect, has just been awful, completely lacking the context, say, of premises. You know, the uh, illegitimacy of the media based on their political lens is only compounded by their illiteracy in math in these times, and the way they're covering the data is a good example of that. So we'll have a little bit more of that later in the show, but stay tuned because coming up we've got HHS Secretary Alex Azar. This is the Dan Fox Show. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Dr. Deborah Burks yesterday talking about where we're at with testing. Uh, this was at uh, last evening's task force briefing. High marks to HHS for getting us to where we are now. We are continuing to accelerate testing at a record rate. 
Um, we now have 370,000 tests that have been done. Um, the majority of those, over 220,000 in the last eight days, which of those of you who have been tracking the South Korea numbers, put us equivalent to what they did in eight weeks that we did in eight days. This was made possible because of the HHS team working together, bringing together the strength of the FDA with the CDC and the, under the leadership of Secretary Azar. And we are pleased now to be joined by aforesaid Secretary Azar, HHS Secretary Alex Azar. Thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, it's no time to take a victory lap, but those uh, numbers that Dr. Burks reported are certainly encouraging. Give us the trajectory of testing and what we can glean from uh, the numbers that are coming in. Well, this huge surge in testing is a result of the great work of CDC and FDA working with the private sector to stand up high-throughput screening. And the FDA has just been removing regulatory barrier after regulatory barrier. Uh, you know, just the other day, we've approved now self-swabbing. So, you know, the, the original test, which the president has joked about, involved quite a long swab going deep up into your nasal and uh, nasal cavity. Uh, now you can actually yourself uh, swab yourself and put it in a test kit, and, and it can be taken back. And, you know, here's the big thing about that. That saves us personal protective equipment from those healthcare workers that would otherwise have been needed to stick that swab up into your nose. So we're trying to preserve everything we've gotten. This information from all of this testing is going to give us even more robust data so that we, local governments and state governments, can come up with the right solutions for how to mitigate the spread of this disease. A former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, had uh, opined in the Wall Street Journal that his expectation with that we'd be at uh, 75,000 tests a day before the end of, of uh, or within the next week is about what he said. And I wonder if that's an accurate statistic. And, and then also because of the high throughput uh, that you mentioned, that we're going to start, uh, we're going to be caught up and then we're going to be able to get these results turned around so that on a daily basis we're up to speed. Well, we've got rapid tests. We've got, we, we have plentiful tests. Testing really needs to come off the table and what people talk about at this point. Uh, we're doing over 50,000 a day. So if we okay. got to 75,000, uh, that, that's certainly within the realm of the possible. But the important thing is that the right people are getting tested and then that the people who are positive are getting treated. The important thing to remember, though, is um, almost all people who get tested do not have the novel coronavirus. Depending on the community you're in, you know, globally, about 3% of people that get tested um, are positive. Of course, in New York, we're seeing higher numbers because New York is so much the epicenter, and you've seen such a, a high what we call attack rate, which is the sheer number of people infected per thousand. Uh, right. And so with, with respect to the testing, I, I understand you've got New York as the, as the, the hottest hotspot with uh, 8x the number of cases as the next highest state. But uh, Tony Fauci said something yesterday at the briefing talking about the dark spots, the hot spots versus the dark spots. And ultimately, at some point, uh, we want to move testing that's more sort of, of the rep getting representative sample size variety to the so-called dark spots because you have the still the possibility to do significant containment in places where there hasn't been an outbreak like New York City? Well, I think, uh, I think there's a misimpression there. Testing is nationwide. It's not, it's not in New York. Uh, testing is out in over 91 public health labs. It's out in doctor's offices through LabCorp and Quest. It's out in pretty much any hospital that has a lab in the United States. It's out in private labs. Uh, so, uh, ten, you know, over 10 million tests are available just from the beginning of March till today out, in, out there in the marketplace. So, 
there's no shortage of test of testing of tests available. So there aren't dark spots, so to speak. Uh, that that that's not representative of what in fact is out there. Testing's occurring. We're getting data from around the country. It just happens to be that New York is the the biggest hot zone that we have at the moment. Well, I guess I meant it just in terms of the next tier, because what uh, has been repeated is people who believe that they are symptomatic or believe they may have had exposure get tested. Those are the priorities. Um, but getting to that next tier of people, of testing people, so you get a representative sample of, of the demography of a particular area. There, there's this Oxford study that's out now across the pond regarding Britain that suggests that maybe as half of, uh, as as many as half of Brits have already had the coronavirus and so if that is doesn't indeed uh, turn out to be the case then it changes our understanding of the lethality and the models that have been bandied about to this point well Dan I've not yet heard about that study okay um, and so I don't want to comment on it but I don't think that's representative of what we're seeing again as, as I said on average, uh, across the across the globe, uh, less than three percent of people who get tested are coming in positive. So that seems to defy the uh, uh, what what you just related there. And those are symptomatic people. Those are who, those are people who are presenting with fever or other symptoms of respiratory illness. And so uh, these are your symptomatic folks. Right. And even, among, even among them, you're not seeing that kind of attack rate. Right. No. I mean, and I understand. Penn said that the other day. You know, one in basically one in ten in America right now that have been tested or have tested positive, and that's that's an important thing to note. I was just trying to to get a sense of symptomatic versus asymptomatic, and and uh, or perhaps those who have already had it uh, had it run through their system and were asymptomatic. I just didn't know how important that next tier or that cohort was. Well, the more important thing isn't all this obsession on, on is, is the question about testing. The most important thing right now is executing well on social distancing and and mitigating the spread of this disease, because even if you know you're positive, the advice is going to be to stay home and to distance from others. And so the really important thing is the president's leadership, both to contain this, the, the, the importation of continued disease from Europe, China, Iran, elsewhere, uh, the spread internally, uh, people who've been in New York recently needing to self-isolate if they travel elsewhere in the country, but then the community mitigation steps that we have asked all of our all of our people to do, which is engage in social distancing, to engage in telework, to teleeducation, um, and to take the normal, usual precautions and take more, even more direct measures in the hot zones around the country. Because remember, these are locally led efforts in the United States. Public health, these responses are locally led, they're state-managed, but they're federally supported with expertise and guidance and surge capacity. I wanted to go back to what you mentioned about New York City and New York State and people who are leaving that uh, wherever they end up, quarantine for 14 days and be, you know, be responsible so you're not taking the virus with you to another location. And, um, you know, how, how much of a concern that is for the federal government and and how much of a coordinate how much coordination is going on between New York state and other state and local governments to to try to um, make sure that we're, the, the, the virus isn't being exported through people who are traveling. Well, it is being exported, and that's the problem. So you've seen the cases move between New York and Westchester County, but then you've seen now the exportation of cases into northern New Jersey and then out into Long Island and into the Connecticut suburbs. And so 
Um, it is, in fact, happening because people are not practicing and haven't been practicing the type of social distancing that the president has asked people to engage in and home isolation. Um, they're moving about and they're bringing that disease with them. And that's why yesterday from the podium, uh, the White House took the very strong measure of advising that anybody who's been in New York within the previous 14 days needs to self-isolate wherever they end up uh, for until they've been out of New York for 14 days and are not showing any symptoms. It's a very real concern. He is Alex Azar. He is the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services. Secretary Azar, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Go, go. Go, Johnny, go. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's get to uh, some of the particulars and what's in the $2 trillion deal that uh, Senate Republican and Democrat leaders have agreed upon. Uh, the direct payments, 1200 bucks to individuals making up to 75 grand, 2400 for couples making under making up to 150. That's down. That's down a little bit from uh, uh, the initial proposal prior to the intercession of Nancy Pelosi. The amount decreases for individuals with incomes above 75 grand cut off at uh, 99 grand, uh, which is uh, the previous cutoff. So individual 75, you can double it with your spouse uh, up to 150 effectively is what it is. Expanded unemployment benefits that boost the maximum benefit by $600 per week. And this is important. Provides laid off workers their full pay for four months. We'll talk about incentives with our next guest momentarily. $367 billion for small business loans. Again, there's a. Uh, provisions in there for for loan forgiveness if depending on and or uh, proportional loan forgiveness based on your pre-covid-19 payroll versus your post-covid-19 payroll 150 billion for state and local governments so governors like jb pritzker in illinois can stop complaining about resources they don't have but could have 130 billion for hospitals half a bill half a trillion excuse me in loans for larger industries including the airlines including companies like boeing and uh, again, uh, you know, the uh, uh, accounting aspects of it, to the extent you buy them, oversight board and IG to oversee the loans to large companies uh, and so on and so forth. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Perry, journalist, author and contributing editor of The American Conservative. His latest book is The Pentagon's Wars, and he's got a piece at TheAmericanConservative.com about this whole war metaphor that's being used by the politicians. Mark Perry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be here. So why don't we start with uh, the uh, broad strokes of what that $2 trillion aid package looks like and your reaction to those. And for me, particular emphasis on this idea of paying paying laid off workers their full pay for four months and what kind of incentives that presents. Well, I think it's a, it's a good package. The question that I have is, is it going to be enough? I mean, this the crisis we're in could deepen, it could broaden. Uh, it's clear that the economy is headed for um, a real um, a real series of problems over the next few months. 
we might actually see our Congress revisit this in the future and maybe do another trillion dollars in packages. And they were talking about this on the Hill yesterday of whether it's it's really going to be enough. So it's it's good news, uh, and I I think that the broad provisions in it are um, are quite good. But but two and two trillion dollars is a lot of money. There's no question. Uh, but well, considering what we're facing, it's not clear to me that it's ever that it's really going to be enough. Well, the question, though, too, is is what is the path forward in addition to this look like? Because how many times can you go to the well, not just the two trillion, but the other four trillion on the monetary side? How many times can you go to the well with uh, packages uh, that represent a third of our annual GDP? Well, that's exactly right. And to be completely blunt, the money isn't there. They're making they're making it up. Right. Um, uh, I, you know, I think that, you know, people keep saying, well, hope is not a policy. Well, hope is a policy, but it's not a very good policy. And that's what we're facing now. I mean, I think I think we have a choice here. We can shut down the economy and deal with this virus or we can ignore the virus and get the economy going. But it's you know, it's we can't be halfway. And what strikes me as problematic is that we're. We're halfway. And if we're halfway, that's even worse because it means kind of dealing with the coronavirus and kind of dealing with the economy and kind of dealing with the coronavirus won't work because it'll spread and kind of dealing with the economy won't work because it'll it'll still tank. So, you know, let's do one or the other. If we're going to lock this country down to kill this virus, then we've got to really, really lock it down. Uh, and while uh, and while that's going to really tank the economy, and there's no question it will, it will kill the virus. And we're going to have to kill this thing sooner or later. If it runs its course, the numbers that we're facing in terms of fatalities could be quite large. Uh, when we come back, I want to pick up uh, on this uh, topic a little bit more, just explore this a little bit more, and then also get to your piece in the American Conservative about uh, the war metaphor for combating the virus. More with Mark Perry. Contributing at the American Conservative, latest book, The Pentagon's Wars. More with Mark Perry right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Mark Perry, journalist, author, contributing editor at the AmericanConservative.com. His latest book, The Pentagon's Wars. And Mark, you were just saying before the break, uh, you know, we got to do one full full bore or the other, either shut down the economy and deal with the virus or uh, marshal on with knowing that the virus is likely to spread and start reopening uh, portions of the economy. And I wonder if maybe uh, there isn't some um, middle ground, some balance to strike. For example, how these shutdowns started rolling out. I mean, there's no federal order in place. So this was governors taking it upon themselves based on the circumstances in their state. Uh, and obviously, it's only a small fraction of governors who've issued uh, shelter in place orders. 
Uh, what about it going the other way, too? Similarly, saying governors who haven't had a particularly big outbreak uh, have it uh, contained, managed, uh, again, in consultation with infectious disease experts, uh, starting to uh, reopen, reopen bars and restaurants uh, with certain social distancing provisions in place and the like. Uh, is there a middle way? I mean, why? Why, if we're why shut down Wyoming and Idaho, if you know, if it if there's no if there's no real uh, disease problem there, if there's no real virus problem there. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm a real fan of our federated system. We have 50 basically uh, 50 federal districts, 50 states, and we ought to allow uh, local governments to decide what they're going to do. The problem with this is that it's not a very effective way to fight what is a national problem, which is which is this virus. I'd hate, I'd hate for the president to come out and say, I'm shutting down the whole country. Right. But on the other hand, if you have 50 different uh, shutdowns and some places not shut down at all, the economies there might work well. But sooner or later, somebody from New York is going to fly to Wyoming. We know this. And sooner or later, Wyoming is going to suffer the, the same effects of the virus as New York. We're pretty certain, pretty certain about that. And why would you even take a chance that that's true? So here we are kind of, you know, one leg over the fence and one leg not. And uh, people in in Washington who are in this coronavirus task force are kind of studying this and hoping that the numbers will tell them something different, that, you know, you can keep part of the economy open and and that uh, hope springs eternal. But people are starting to lose faith in that, to be honest. Uh, I wanted to get to your piece about uh, the boomers versus the young uh, and uh, uh, the, the piece at AmericanConservative.com. The boomers will sacrifice themselves on the beaches of COVID-19, clearly a reference to World War II in Omaha Beach. And you make the point that, uh, yes, uh, the politicians talk about uh, shared sacrifice, but uh, the sharing is never equal. And uh, interestingly, uh, one aspect of it, uh, and you have another, but one aspect of it is, People that are being hurt the worst, of course, are the people that have the least means. So it's the lower income workers that are being hurt the most economically in this shared sacrifice. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a day job and most Americans do and you're going paycheck to paycheck, this really hurts you. If you're a restaurant worker, uh, if you are a baggage handler at an airport these are, you know, you've got to have an income. You can't sit at home. We hope that this package will take care of that. But for a lot of people, it just won't. And I mean, you have to wonder if you are a owner of a restaurant and it's a very small margin that you're operating on after four months, even if you weather the storm, are you going to want to reopen that restaurant? Are you going to be able to, Right. where are you going to get the money to do it? This is a real economic crisis. I don't think we should underestimate it. And from your piece, the comparison of this to war and your comparison to World War II, of course, this is in reverse. It was the young that sacrificed the most in World War II as frontline soldiers. And here we have the baby boomers, the older, that are most uh, in the crosshairs of this virus. Yeah, it kind of made me smile. I mean, my neighborhood in, in Arlington, Virginia, suburb of Washington, they, the grocery stores now have hours. I think it's 7 in the morning till 8.30 in the morning for uh, those who are 65 and older. Right. Uh, ostensibly to allow them to shop more conveniently. I think the real point here is, and I'm, I'm not being critical of the hours, I think they're great. And they're great for our senior citizens, but, you know, let's not kid ourselves. These are the people who are most likely 
if they receive an if they contract an infection from the virus, are the most likely to die. And and the point of the of the hours might be the convenience for the seniors, but it's also to keep them away from young people. And frankly, this is as it should be. We need you know this is in war. This is what's called the seed corn. You never put in doubt the seed corn. You never expend the seed corn. The seed corn in this country is 18 to 35 year olds. They're going to lead us into the future, and they're the ones who are not likely to die from this virus. Although the numbers on that are are still being uh, generated. So, you know, we need to keep them safe. And these senior hours do that. So it's really, this is the boomer virus. And this is because that's the age group that it's likely to affect. And if we talk uh, war metaphors, it's precisely the opposite of what happened in World War II. In World War II, we chewed up the seed corn and it was the older folks who survived the war. This is going to be just the opposite. I'm old enough to have lived through a number of these viral outbreaks over the last uh, 20 odd years. Uh, uh, we go back to I, perhaps a better comparison than so many have made to the Spanish flu of 1918 is the uh, flu outbreak in 1957 in this country and yeah. the, 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 the death that that inflicted. Uh, and I just wonder what your perspective is, since you're giving us a historical perspective on the American response to this, uh, both sort of psychologically as well as substantively as compared to previous outbreaks. I think that... Um... I must say I'm very surprised that the country responded um, as quickly as it did. There's a lot of complaints that it didn't, but compared to what this country does usually, this was a very quick response. And I'm also surprised by the depth of the anxiety, the real worry on the part of the American people. But I don't think it's been matched in terms of policy. And I'm not I'm not complaining about the policymakers here. They're doing the best with the information they have, which is very incomplete. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, my point of view is, make a choice, one or the other, either lock this thing down for three weeks, and make this virus go away, or, um, you know, let's see if herd immunity really works. Now I, you know, that that's a terrible decision. There isn't. But the truth is, there is not a good decision here. Yeah. If we fight this virus, we're gonna we're gonna tank this economy, and that's just the way it is. And and but but make a choice. We can't we can't do, you know, both at the same time. And I hope that policymakers kind of understand this. Or or what's going to happen is we're going to tank the economy, and the virus is still going to hang in there, and we're going to have to lock it down anyway. And that is the worst possible choice that we have. He is Mark Perry, journalist, author, contributing editor at The American Conservative, where you can check out his piece, The Boomers Will Sacrifice Themselves on the Beaches of COVID-19, and also check out his book, The Pentagon's Wars. Mark Perry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. A great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. There is a reason that the great, the late great William F. Buckley said that he would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people out of the Boston Telephone book than by 2,000 faculty members at Harvard. Uh, The reason is because he would be governed better with the random 2,000 individuals from the Boston Telephone book, and there'd probably be a lot less hypocrisy. (laughs) People... Uh, a lot better at um, passing the mirror test than the faculty at Harvard, although I think 
shame. They are impervious to shame. This is the left-wing intelligentsia and the uh, base camp for it, right? $40 billion endowment. I believe it's the largest in the nation. Harvard University reports uh, the Washington Free Beacon is cutting its subcontracted dining hall workers without pay as it shuts down in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Shared sacrifice, doing your part, keeping people on the payroll, making sure to tend to uh, those that are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum that uh, the uh, Harvard professorate speaks about often, of course, from the ivory tower of Harvard. They don't want actual interaction. They don't actually care that much about them, of course, as is evidenced here. Uh, in 2018, the New York Times reported the university dining halls at Harvard employed 275 subcontractors. It's a lot of people. A uh, little back of the envelope math done by Alana Goodman at the Free Beacon, uh, who penned this story. It would cost Harvard $710,000 to provide four weeks of full-time paid leave for all of its subcontracted employees, which represents one one thousandth of a percent of Harvard's $40 billion endowment. Unless you think that um, every university is as cavalier as Harvard, uh, she notes University of Chicago, which has an endowment about uh, one-fifth the side of, uh, size of Harvard's, they're paying their uh, dining hall and food service workers. Uh, university uh, vice president uh, telling the uh, campus paper at the University of Chicago, for example, during this challenging time, we're making a commitment that through our contracts with the relevant vendors, the food service workers at the university, both full and part time, will continue to receive their regular pay for the duration of the spring quarter. You know, so basically to uh, the end of the academic year. Wow. Uh, this has spawned a petition uh, on uh, the, the Harvard's decision uh, in uh, an equal and opposite reaction to University of Chicago's uh, has spawned a petition on campus uh, berating, of course, this is the only the left on the left, berating the uh, Panjan drums at Harvard for their decision to clip these uh, food service worker subcontractors. But, I mean, don't you just love it? So just, it's one of those stories to keep in mind when you are – subjected to the preening of the leftist intellectuals from places like Harvard uh, who want to tell you how to live your life and what you're not doing uh, or are doing uh, that is in uh, uh, disregard to the health and well-being of your fellow man. Remember what they did during this crisis. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Rusty Reno has uh, penned a couple of provocative thought pieces over the last uh, few days, uh, which is what he does, and which is why we have him on the show. Rusty Reno, editor at First Things. His uh, latest piece, good, saying, to be with him. Good, to, good to have you, uh, Rusty. Thanks for joining us again. Your latest piece, Say No to Deaths 
definition. Let's start with the uh, clergy, because this has been a, a, a not a topic that's been discussed a lot, but we've kicked it around here a little bit, and there's a lot of people who feel the same way that you do, which is um, the clergy's abdication in this time, their sort of preemptive agreement with the state about uh, shutting down is a bit troubling. Yes, it is pretty demoralizing when liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries are considered essential services, but worship is not. That's very demoralizing, I think, for us. It's a demoralizing insight into what our society really values. And then the lack of really strong pushback from our religious leaders is also demoralizing. Yeah, and what does that say about the state of, uh, I'll just talk about my own church, the Catholic Church, for example. I haven't heard anything from Cardinal Supich in Chicago. I haven't heard uh, much on the topic of the shutdowns from Pope Francis or the role of clergy in a time of crisis like this. And you you point out uh, it was very different in places like, uh, oh, I don't know, Germany during World War II when they were being bombed and kids were still going to school and uh, clerics were still uh, practicing the faith for the very reason of maintaining some, you know, uh, human interaction, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, doing human things during troubled times. Yes. I mean, obviously, the, um, you know, uh, preventing or trying to slow the spread of infection, it, it, it necessarily puts limits on, on what the church can and should do. But I think the pivot from kind of business as usual to kind of a complete shutdown um, has been a, a mistake. Uh, there is a diocese outside of Madrid that has continued to administer um, communion. I think, you know, prudent measures can be taken to to do the basic functions of the church in a way that's not uh, irresponsible. And here in New York, some churches are, are locked. I mean, they're just literally not open. Uh, but other churches are open um, during the business day, and you can go in and pray before the Blessed Sacrament. Um, the Holy Father has encouraged um, a pilgrimage. Um, so he, he actually, I think, has been good on this. Um, he pushed back against the shutting down of churches in Rome and said you shouldn't be closing the churches even if we even if the church suspends um, public celebration of the Eucharist. Um, you tackled uh, more specifically the argument made by politicians that everything we're doing is to save life at any cost, and uh, saving life at any cost is beyond reproach, that, uh, that disposition. And you suggest not only is it sentimental babble, it's dangerous. Yes, I think it's demonic. I mean, at any cost? Saving life at any cost? If, I, if, we, could, if we were Aztecs and we thought we could sacrifice a thousand um, people and Times Square, and that would put an end to the pandemic, we should do that. I mean, obviously, justice should never be sacrificed to saving life. Um, I, I don't think beauty should be sacrificed um, <clears throat> to saving life. Um, there are many things. And I mean, what makes us human is that we don't live just for the sake of our physical survival. We live for higher things, for family, um, for <clears throat> you know, our community. And I think this question of justice is an important part of civic life. Uh, and obviously for our, um, the spiritual things. So I, I think it's very troubling to live in an environment where you cannot practice the corporal works of mercy. Hmm. And, you know, I think that you know, the church would be more vocal about this. We need to be asking, how can we fight this um, disease without suspending the corporal works of mercy? Um, to say nothing of um, the spiritual works of mercy. I want to go to um, this piece by Brendan O'Neill at Spiked. Uh, about uh, the luxury of apocalypticism. 
And uh, yeah, I thought that was a great piece. It was a great, it was an unbelievable piece. And I want you to get to you to comment specifically on what he said about the uh, misanthropic elites. The practical challenge posed by this new sickness has been collapsed into the elite's pre-existing culture of misanthropic dread. Uh, he uh, notes some headlines from like the Washington Post. Coronavirus is an indictment of our way of life. And he said, here we cut to the heart of the apocalyptic mindset of the modern elite. Their dread over natural calamities or novel new illnesses is not driven by the actual facts about these things, far less by the desire to overcome them through the deployment of human expertise and scientific discovery. Rather, it speaks to their pre-existing moral disorientation, their deep loss of faith in the human project itself. It is their downbeat cultural convictions that draws them to apocalypticism as surely as light draws in moss. I think this is a factor. I mean, obviously there are people who are, you know, public health officials and doctors who are throwing themselves into this battle in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very noble way. But I, I agree. I was walking my dog yesterday, and, and this, this, these two women were talking. I could hear, overhear them. And the woman said, well, we deserve it. We just, we've, we're destroying the planet. I thought, wow. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, this, that's exactly what, what he was speaking about, this sort of even kind of relishing the prospect of destruction. Um, yeah, I do, I do think that after, in a post-Christian culture, you, you actually have all this guilt running around with no place to go. And people, especially elites, actually relish the idea that, you know, our, our modern society is destroying the planet and the climate catastrophe is coming and we're going to get punished. Another, uh, another way of uh, describing this uh, borrows from Susan Sontag, actually, of all people, the idea that we're growing stupid together. And uh, this is illustrated in, for example, uh, the, uh, uh, the reaction to uh, the terminology used to describe the virus, uh, whether or not uh, using Chinese or Wuhan virus or what have you is racist and the D.C. press corps' obsession with that and the left's obsession because the D.C. press corps is obsessed and uh, this uh, concentric circle around the uh, whole public health and economic health crisis. <laughs> it's a sign of how frivolous our politics have become, isn't it? Mm. You know, people, I mean, we're, we're crashing our economy in a way that as un- unprecedented historically. There's never been a state-mandated economic depression, and that's what we're entering into. So who knows where that's going to lead? And then, of course, there is the suffering of people who are ill and, and, and those who have died. And we're, we have a press corps that's worried about whether we call it the Wuhan virus or the, or the what, whatever they want to call it, you know, the, the, the XYZ virus or something like that, something innocuous. It, it, it is a sign of how frivolous. And I do think we're being, we are being buffaloed into a radical response to this threat by our elite that doesn't believe in anything greater than physical survival. And it's turning our society, at least for a temporary period, into a very Hobbesian environment, um, which I resent. And I think well, we need to remember this when it's all said and done. We have to pick up the wreckage. Um, who, who, who was screaming that we had to do all this? Yeah, and uh, I like your formulation. We need to be held accountable. Uh, and and I like your formulation on economics too. It used to be the government wrecked the economy accidentally. Now we're in the phase where they're doing it on purpose. Um, yeah, that is. Yes, a, no, I, I agree. <laughs> um, and we don't know where that's going to lead. You know, we have no historical precedent for that. Um, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful. I mean, I try to be hopeful, but who knows? Nobody knows where this is going to take us. And you know, I hope that President Trump, uh, you know, can 
can strong arm some of these governors. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't just worry about the economic. I also worry about the social. I mean, how many vulnerable parochial schools are going to survive this? How many city orchestras that already have stretched budgets? Um, you know, how many other nonprofits and civic organizations are going to wind up being swept away in the in the economic storm that's coming? Um, and and so I worry about that, and also I worry about spiritual um, consequences of this shutdown. How many people are going to go back to church? You know, you get used to it, and uh, you get into a habit. So, so I I worry about I worry about the political implications. I think when it's all said and done, the government's going to own a great deal of the, of the economy, and so the workout is going to make us look like post-Soviet Russia, um, which is not a pretty pretty sight of log rolling and um, people who have contacts getting the best deals and all that sort of thing. So I think there's political, social, and spiritual consequences here that just have not been adequately measured. Um, a lot of talk about the economic consequences in terms of working people who can't, aren't going to be able to make rent. I think that's hugely important, but there's also the political, social, and spiritual. Um, I mean, man cannot live on bread alone, and when we try to do that for a season, we do a great deal of damage um, even if it's temporary, we do damage to our humanity. He is Rusty Reno. He's the editor at FirstThingsFirstThings.com. Check out his latest piece, which I tweeted out, Say No to Death's Dominion. Rusty, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show senator josh howley has called for an international investigation into uh, china's cover-up of the spread of covid19 uh, follows on the back of much propaganda emanating from China and being picked up from other enemies of America like Iran in rejecting even the olive branch that President Trump extended to help those countries, even though they're mortal enemies, with uh, controlling the spread of their disease, uh, of the disease in their country. And uh, that certainly is a problem that Iran has, just as China had. We don't know the truth about Russia is it true that Russia has fewer cases than Luxembourg, as a CNN story reported over the weekend? Maybe, but it's always difficult to believe the official party line from authoritarian states and communist dictators, isn't it? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Yan. He's an author, columnist, war, co- war correspondent, Green Beret. He was trying to get a bit more detailed information about uh, the state of circumstances in China, but he was denied entry into Hong Kong, much at the same time as journalists from The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times are being kicked out of China, as we've discussed on this show. Michael Yan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello from Chiang Mai, Thailand. I was denied entry into my last trip into Hong Kong on February 5th. I had been there for about six months. Actually, last year, I just got my vaccinations to head back to India, and then the insurgency kicked up in Hong Kong. So I jumped on a flight and went straight to Hong Kong, and I spent six months in that. And it was, you know, I wasn't really there just reporting on it. To be honest, I was kind of helping it. See, I've been writing about China for years. I've been to China many times. 
I've written three books on Chinese information war. My third one just came out in Japan three weeks ago. So when this virus started kicking off, the patient zero may have been November 17th. That's unclear. But when it started kicking off, I started paying attention to it in December. And then finally in January, that was when I said, oh, this is big. So I started to actually publish about it in January. Started telling people to stock up, actually, because it could be serious. And then I took a break from Hong Kong and went to my office here in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And when I flew back to Hong Kong, they kicked me right out. Not a fan of your reporting, probably to no surprise. It shouldn't be. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I expect not. So so what uh, do you make of the official party line on Wuhan and that, uh, you know, there's essentially there was a day last week, there was no new cases and things are resuming to normalcy in China and uh, they've beaten COVID-19? Oh, it's a complete lie. You know, that's what they do is they lie. Uh, you know, even back in January, I was saying, no, eventually they'll blame this on the United States and they'll blame it on Japan. Now, that might seem like, you know, foretelling the future, but it's not. I study China. I know how they operate. I used to hunt alligators when I was a kid growing up in Florida, right? I know how alligators behave. They have very predictable behaviors, and so does the Chinese Communist Party. They will always blame Japan, and they will always blame the United States. So, I mean, that's how China operates. I just don't believe them. They lie. Do you not believe the 81,000 cases that were reported? Do you not believe the number of deaths reported? Do you not believe that it's, it's uh, subsided? Which, which of that do you believe and not believe? I believe the cases will be much, much higher. Uh, and, and this is based on and even back in January, I was saying they'll probably understate it by at least a factor of 10. And I'm not just picking that from the sky, because for years I've noticed that they will generally overstate or understate things by about a factor of 10. Uh, and I've actually seen in the last uh, about month and a half, a doctor, I saw him on a television show, actually a Chinese doctor, saying they always overstate or understate by a factor of 10. He came to the same conclusion. But now, whether or not they put a lid on it for now, I don't know. I mean, that's unclear because it, they're kicking out reporters. Yeah, the, to the timing of kicking out those reporters, uh, that, you know, that seems to suggest maybe they're not so interested in anybody doing a postmortem on their handling of the uh, viral outbreak or, or the numbers they've reported. Uh, is, is that your supposition as well? Or it could kick back on again. If you listen to the infectious disease experts, they'll tell you, I mean, you can put a lid on it by forcing isolation or getting uh, people to be compliant, which Chinese often are not compliant. And I'm talking about Chinese on the mainland. I'm not talking about Hong Kongers or Taiwanese or Singaporeans. That's a different world. But, you know, you can force the R-naught lower. The infectious disease uh, experts will say that all day long. But then if you take the lid off of it and people go back to work, it can just resurge. And so that's what uh, many infectious disease experts are, are worried about now. But, but of course, they've got more than one. There's the public health issue, but then there's also the economy. As you know, there's, there's more, more angles to this triangle than just public health, and, and they all play in together. And so it's a, it's a complex dance. Uh, much has been uh, made of uh, South Korea and Singapore, as well as Taiwan, how they handled the outbreak uh, and the lessons to be gleaned from how they handled the outbreak. And is there anything with respect to the... Uh, conventional wisdom, the reporting on their handling of the outbreak in those three countries that is uh, uh, incomplete? Uh, and, and if not, you know, what, is, what are the top one or two takeaways from the handling of the outbreak by those countries? Oh, huge takeaways are jumping right on it. Like when you have a fire in your kitchen, you don't wait to do anything about it. They jumped right on it. They were very aggressive with their testing, which, of course, we have not been. But they were very aggressive with their testing. 
and very aggressive with isolation of, of uh, cases and quarantines and that sort of thing. So that clearly has been successful. Now, when it comes to Hong Kong, where, I, again, I just spent six months until they denied me entry on the last entry, the, the government itself of Hong Kong has not been stellar on the reactions, but the people, the Hong Konger people, have a lot of cultural discipline. And so they were wearing a lot of masks. They, they still, if you mention SARS in, say, Taiwan or I've been to all these countries many times, Taiwan, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, if, if you mention SARS, that's a very scary thing for them. For Americans, mostly, we don't pay much attention to it. But over in Hong Kong, for instance, if you say SARS, their eyes light up. Sure. Like, it was very serious. And so this is, based, this is SARS, too. So, so as soon as this started to become clear that it was a thing, uh, everybody's wearing masks. So, I mean, all, almost everybody's wearing masks. So that uh, almost certainly – and they were exercising social uh, discipline insofar as uh, distancing and that sort of thing, which reduced the, you know, the spread. And what is it's going to hit though? Hong Kong is going to get hit. I, I can see it. You can you can see the numbers are coming up right now. And even today, when I was talking with some journalists and other friends there, uh, they can see that people's behavior is changing. They realize it's going to get them. As someone who's done so much report, uh, reporting there in the Far East and Southeast Asia, what's your interpretation of President Xi uh, taking more and more draconian measures to close down a Chinese society? Is that a sign of weakness? Is that a sign that? Maybe the Communist Party isn't in trouble, but President Xi, as the head of it, is. The CCP and or PRC, People's Republic of China, they're not as stable as they like to make them appear. Uh, and certainly, with what's just happened with the devastation to the economy, and keeping in mind this is a slow-moving, this is a, you know, their economy just got hit. Very, first of all, the trade, uh, you know, the, the tariffs and whatnot were very damaging uh, for the Chinese economy. And then comes this. And they also had swine flu and army worms, which a lot of people may have forgotten about. Those were actually very serious deals as well. And now comes this disease, which has shut down much of their industry. And now their markets across Europe and also United States and Canada and other places. So in addition to the direct devastation within China, now their markets are, are really slowing down. As you can see, you'll see it in Chicago very soon. He is Michael Yan, author, columnist, war correspondent, uh, Green Beret. Michael Yan Online Magazine is where you can catch uh, his writings from, uh, from, well, from Thailand for now and uh, all, uh, uh, all along the, the Southeast Asia corridor. Ma Michael Yan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime, Dan. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. In the early morning hours, Wednesday, Senate Republican Democrat leaders agreed to a $2 trillion aid package in response to the economic devastation inflicted by the spread of the coronavirus. President Trump on Tuesday saying he wasn't going to sign the bill that uh, Nancy Pelosi put over the top of the $1.8 trillion proposal by Senate Republicans over the weekend. He wouldn't be signing it, and the president explained why. 
I canceled the deal last night. I said, I'm not going to sign that deal because Nancy Pelosi came in and put a lot of things in the deal that had nothing to do with the workers, that had to do with an agenda that they've been trying to get passed for 10 years. And I came in, I told Mike, I told a lot of people, there's no way I'm signing that deal. I was getting calls from John Kennedy, from Ben Sass, from uh, many, many people, Lindsay. I, I was getting calls from a lot of different people saying, this deal, uh, Tom Cotton, this deal is terrible, what they've done. They took a deal. You know, we almost had a deal the day before. And it was between Schumer and uh, Mitch, and it was really a good, solid deal. All of a sudden, they start throwing all of the little uh, Green New Deal stuff in, right? And uh, the boardrooms, what they look like, and uh, we want uh, green energy. We want all this stuff. Let's stop drilling oil. And uh, that was a no-go. And so uh, what we have right now uh, is uh, a deal in place that would uh, that has some alterations from what the Senate Republicans propose, most notably expanded unemployment benefits that boost the maximum benefit by $600 per week and provide full pay for four months for laid-off workers in addition to these uh, small loan uh, small business loans slash grants, depending on uh, the level of employment they maintain, uh, grants to state and local governments, to hospitals, $500 billion in loans to larger industries, the Boeings, the airlines. Uh, those are some in addition to the direct cash payments to Americans. Uh, those were the broad strokes of what was initially proposed by Senate Republicans. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, MSNBC and NBC News contributor, and author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. You uh, opined on what uh, Nancy Pelosi got uh, congressional Democrats to do and uh, suggesting sort of the top line vastly misread the moment in uh, the counter proposal that was made. Well, it's always sort of difficult to measure events that haven't happened to prove a negative. <clears throat> and the negative in this case is the, uh, you know, heaping media a program over the shoulders of Nancy Pelosi for essentially contributing to the derailment of what had already essentially been agreed to by Sunday night, um, the Senate package that was that was hammered out in the bipartisan process, and then they couldn't get a cloture vote, a vote just to debate the measure, which could have been amended after that vote. Um, and that was in part due to Pelosi's inter intervention in the process. And the president is, is right insofar as the bill that she put forward was a political document, a positioning statement that had no choice or chance of ever being passed uh, in the form in which it was drafted. And it did include some rather obscene things that have nothing to do with the crisis, like $100 million for NASA to construct a, and for construction and environmental compliance and $300 million for PBS and $500 million for the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences uh, and, you know, three, $35 million for the Kennedy Center and diversity boards on corporate staff and emission standards and bailing out the Post Service and all that stuff. You know, some of it. You can debate the merits of it as aspirational statements or valuable. Some of it is certainly just obscene giveaways, but none of it had anything to do with the crisis at hand, which was particularly acute. And the press reaction when Republicans in the Senate attempted to leverage, I think very cynically, 
um, the notion that debts and deficits are something that we should be uh, deeply focused on and concerned here as the government is forcing the economy to shut down, is grinding the economy to the halt. And we should be very concerned now about rates, like about uh, contributing to the debt now amid this issue. I mean, that, that to me was very cynical. And it didn't last for more than 24 hours. It was a positioning statement. But the reaction here has been far more muted uh, from the press, even though it was just as, if not more, cynical from Democrats. When we come back, I want to... Uh offer a hypothesis as to why Nancy Pelosi may be encouraged to do what she did, despite any uh, concern about a backlash and get your reaction to that. We're talking to Noel Rothman. He is the author of Unjust Social Justice and the Unmasking, excuse me, the Unmaking of America. He's the associate editor of Commentary Magazine. We'll be back with more Noah right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Noel Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, MSNBC, and NBC News contributor, and author of the book "Unjust: Social Justice and the Unmaking of America." I know we were talking about uh, Nancy Pelosi's gambit, uh, which uh, has uh, produced um, some amendments on the margins, it would appear, uh, in the the, uh, $2 trillion aid package. One of them I I just want to uh, uh, get your take on before we get to um, the impetus for Pelosi's play, and that is uh, laid off workers, full pay for four months. Uh, boy, uh, with a, a desire to get uh, people back to work just as soon as is reasonably safe, that seems to be a real disincentive to provide full pay unemployment benefits for that period of time. It, it seems to be something akin to what um, the U.K. and Denmark have done, which is to provide employers with a, a substantial percentage, 75, 80 percent of uh, the cover, the salaries of the people that they have on payroll now for X amount of time, a certain amount of months, just as long as they maintain their current payroll obligations. Right. Um, that, to me, seems like a, re- a reasonable, if not exorbitantly expensive, approach to a crisis, which is not a financial contagion, which is not forced upon us by bad business practices from within the private sector, but the government essentially outlawing capitalism, saying that you cannot conduct commerce yes. for X amount of time. There's no moral hazard there, and it is incumbent on the government now to borrow at exorbitant rates in order to meet that measure. The problem is that we've been borrowing forever in good times, in times of plenty, and we knew this was coming, and now it's time to pay the piper. Right. No, no. I look, I understand about uh, maintaining payroll and interceding to cover payroll uh, so that you keep people employed. But uh, for those that are laid off, uh, for my, you know, I, I, just, I just don't like yeah. the incentives that presents. You know what I'm saying? But I, I, I hear what yeah, you're I, saying, I, too. I totally understand. And I, conceptually, this has all been very difficult to get your head around. Yeah. Um, our ideological priors don't meet this moment. No one meets this moment. I mean, you've seen plenty of people on the left who are 
insistent upon the notion that this is not a libertarian moment and everybody's appealing to government. Well, actually, states and, and the federal government are slashing regulations left and right. They're cutting as much red tape as they possibly can and freeing the animal spirits, as it were, to meet this moment. Similarly, the, prob- the public sector is intervening in the private sector, and it is usurping private sector forces in order to meet this moment. And we are all acting collectively in extremely individualistic circumstances. It is very difficult for an ideological, an ideologue with a lot of priors to conceptualize this moment because if you're honest about them, there are aspects of it that don't conform to your worldview. Yeah, and uh, now going back to Pelosi's incentive to make this a, a moment for her to issue, as you said, a position statement and to uh, offer sops to her uh, uh, cultural Marxist base. Uh, Eric Levitz, writing in New York Magazine, uh, despite our workers' unique vulnerability to the harms of illness and employment, congressional Republicans are not only unwilling to support universal paid leave or make an open-ended commitment to covering 80% of workers' salaries, but also are fighting to protect the right of bailed-out corporations to fire as many workers as they see fit. Uh, the headline of his piece, Coronavirus Exposes the Virulence of American Conservatism. Uh, many on the left clearly see this as an opportunity to prosecute their political case. Yeah, of course. And there's some on the right who are doing that as well. It's extremely cheap. It's just such a cheap shot. And again, as I said, it doesn't conform to an honest perspective of what's going on here. And it's a bad faith argument. I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but the notion, for example, there was some Republican opposition to compelling uh, corporations that were the recipients of this sort of aid to refuse to buy back, you know, to dec- prevent them from purchasing their own stock back. Um, and this was, you know, just presented as a stop, a giveaway to big corporations so that rich people can line their own pockets. And that's just simply not true. The argument is that these kind of uh, these kind of impositions on firms compel them to maintain overhead that they can't meet, which will therefore necessarily force them to cut areas that they absolutely have to cut, the most expensive areas of their operations, which is employment and payroll, and will force more people on red lines, as it were, you know, if things get really serious. That's the concern from people who are arguing against this sort of thing. And so the arguments made in bad faith are really proliferating. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, however, is responding to media incentives. I mean, she, she understood, I think, frankly, as they understand, as Democrats understood in 2018, that they would never be called out by media when they shut down the government. They expected the press to be with them um, and to at least cover for them and assume that Republicans were, the, were, the, were responsible for the government shutdown because Republicans are always responsible for this government shutdown. I think she misread that moment because when she put out this bill, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot there wasn't a deluge as Republicans experienced of a program of castigation, but there were a lot of people who were looking very askance at this. Like it wasn't it didn't meet the measure of the moment, and as a result, it didn't survive for 24, 48 hours. I think it was serious miscalculation that was predicated on the assumption that media would always cover for Democrats, and they didn't really in this case. And does that miscalculation redound to the detriment of Joe Biden, who's trying to reassert himself into this conversation? I mean, possibly. He seems to have just faded into the background. He really is a non-factor at this moment. I think it's far too early to, to assume that that will have any bearing on the, on the presidential election. But at the moment, he is absolutely not a part of this conversation. Right. And, and the, the question is, um, it, Bernie Sanders announcing, I mean, just that the electoral political question, which has to be addressed at some point here as we uh, move into to uh, sort of the sweet spot of the 2020 election cycle. Bernie Sanders said he's staying in the race to this point. If Bernie Sanders stays in the race and he can keep Joe Biden under the necessary majority to secure the nomination, do we have a possibility uh, consistent with some of the chatter that's out there that someone like Andrew Cuomo, who's seen as more rising to the moment than, say, Joe Biden, 
could be a second ballot or third ballot nominee? I mean, look, it, it, it's impossible to forecast two weeks into the future at yeah. this point. Yeah. So anything is possible. Anybody who says it's a, yeah, highly unlikely, I'm willing to go that far. Impossible. I can't say anything is impossible at this point. Um, Bernie Sanders is doing something extremely selfish, which is uh, sort of par for the course for him. And it's something of a zombie campaign right now, but he's also not really – by his own admission, not running a presidential campaign, he's leading a movement which, but definitionally, can cannot end. It has to continue in perpetuity. So mm-hmm. why would he ever drop out? Yeah, but I mean, it just goes to whether or not you know. I mean, Joe Biden's performance in these moments, particularly as he's reasserting himself by starting to do these briefings like he did yesterday and appearing on uh, talk shows. You know, that's going to be measured against the moment, what he is doing when he does assert himself and, and, and make himself public. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's a tough choice for him, too. What are you supposed to do? Just fade into the background in this moment? Sort right. of abandon your presidential campaign, feed the microphone to the president? I mean, that's sort of a, a bad political strategy, but also reinserting yourself at this particular moment and making yourself look sort of like just a just a snugging from the sidelines at a very serious time in the country's history also doesn't doesn't seem to fit what the country needs at this point. So I, I sympathize with people around Joe Biden trying to figure out how to navigate this mm. particular moment in American history. I don't know how to do it either. He is Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, MSNBC and NBC News contributor, and author of the book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, I know there's uh, an emphasis on the federal management of the response to the coronavirus, the decisions that are being made both from a public health as well as an economic perspective. Uh, But uh, make sure you pay attention to what your state government is doing. Remember the federal response? I share this with your friends. Federal support, state management, local implementation. Federal support. State management, local implementation, that's how it works. So that state management turns out to be mission critical, doesn't it? And you've had uh, some governors and some mayors uh, openly critical of the president at uh, various points over the last several weeks. He got into a bit of a tete-a-tete on Twitter with uh, my home state governor, J.B. Pritzker. And uh, there's complaining that still persists in the Chicago media market because it's cheap and easy for Pritzker and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to bitch about Trump rather than to uh, be held accountable. um, Well, by the electorate here, uh, much less uh, hold themselves accountable for what they're doing, for example. And this is why you got to check your governors. I don't care. Republican, Democrat. Uh, Governor Pritzker is complaining about uh, supplies and uh, available medical space, just as uh, Andrew Cuomo gives during his daily briefings about uh, what they have versus what they need based on the demand and the patient load. According to Governor Pritzker in Illinois, 12,588 beds with uh, 52 percent occupied. However, According to another state agency, the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Board, Illinois has 36,000 plus hospital beds. So that's a 3x difference. What the governor says we have versus what another state agency in the space says we have. 
the governor, Governor Pritzker, says Illinois has 1,106 intensive care unit beds. The same other agency I mentioned, the Illinois Health Facilities and Service Board, says we have 3,477 intensive care unit beds. Again, off by a factor of three or a discrepancy that uh, is a factor of three. So who's right? Well, we're still sorting this out in Illinois. Remember, Illinois is the worst governed state in American history. And Chicago is the worst governed city in America. So these things are not easy for us to distill. But if you're in uh, one of these states uh, that is lorded over by a governor who wants to abdicate responsibility for the state management piece of the national response or the local implementation piece of the national response for your mayors, and they don't have to be of big cities, then just make sure that uh, they're reporting in specifics so you can check their reporting specifically. Uh, Because uh, here, what uh, the governor says, or the mayor of Chicago says, and what is actually the case on the ground can often be two very, very different things. This is the Dan Prof Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And we, uh, covered this uh, op-ed at spiked.com, uh, spiked-online.com, yesterday by Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor. He's also the host of the Spiked podcast. Covered it in some detail. And uh, it's, it's, re- it's really interesting because um, I don't get the sense that Brendan O'Neill is particularly conservative or religious, yet he comes to this very some of the same very conclusions that our friend Rusty Reno who's the editor of First Things, firstthings.com, who's a conservative Catholic, uh, came to, as we discussed with him last hour. For more on his piece, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Brendan O'Neill, also the editor of Spiked Online, also the author of Anti-Woke and Duty to Offend. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, so I just wanted to start with um, the uh, performative apocalypticism that you describe uh, the um, elites mainly of the left engaging in during this time of crisis and what you uh, think underlies their performative apocalypticism? Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think there has been this performative apocalypticism on, amongst the elites, particularly, as you say, the left-leaning elites for quite a long time. And, and I'm very interested in this tendency they have to fold every disaster or every problem or every um, obstacle that humanity faces, they they fold all of those things into a pre-existing narrative of doom and horror and destruction. And it's it's very malarial almost, you know, the, the focus of the apocalypse can switch from one day to the next, but there's always an apocalypse on the horizon. And, and Susan Sontag referred to it in her essay about AIDS in the 1980s. She said it's not apocalypse now, it's apocalypse from now on. And she was predicting Hmm. that there would be uh, one predicted apocalypse after another. And I think what's happening with 
COVID-19, which is obviously an incredibly serious health challenge for our society, that's becoming the focal point for all of their apocalyptic energies. And they're turning what is an undoubted health crisis into an end times event. And I think that's really unhelpful. And, uh, and, and, and trying to get into the psyche of somebody who uh, takes that approach, mm-hmm. it, you sort of suggest in your piece that um, there's a real misanthropy that underlies it. Yes, I think that's the key factor in this. Um, I think what's happened on the left in particular over the past few decades is that they've really given up on humanity and they have this tendency now to see us as a problem to be managed. They see us as a toxic force. We're always damaging the environment. They see us as untrustworthy masses who have to be re-educated in the right way to eat, the right way to parent, um, how we should think about the world. We need to have our minds re-educated. So over time, the, the, the left has become more and more distant from ordinary people. They, they, in fact, hold many ordinary people in utter contempt. They think we're stupid and backward and a danger to the planet. So I think as a consequence of that, they've developed this very misanthropic worldview where they see themselves as, as knowing everything and, being, and, and having the correct wisdom and the rest of us as being these kind of flailing, idiotic people who are either um, destroying the planet or carrying disease or holding the wrong opinions. So they've developed that very snobbish approach to um, ordinary people, ordinary members of the public. And that's really coming to the fore in the COVID-19 crisis because the, the way that, particularly in the way in which they're holding on to the apocalyptic view of this, they really are saying that we need to manage uh, human society. We need to enforce more regulations, more rules. We need to force everyone to obey what we're saying. And that's the only way to solve a crisis like this. So I think a lot of their fear of the future, all of their, um, their conviction that, 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 that humanity is doomed, really springs from an underlying disdain for ordinary people. Well, yeah, and this has come, this has sort of been presented uh, in different forms over the last uh, 20 years, too. I mean, look, I, I remember Dan Savage, noted gay rights activist, saying that we need a period of mandatory abortion in this world mandatory abortion um, because of, you know, his uh, adherence to theories about population control. Um, so it certainly speaks to that misanthropy. But that but then I'm a bit confused because at the same time, they're uh, essentially articulating uh, or or representing what you just described. They're also part of the uh, will do anything to save a life, save a save a life at all costs. And uh, you can't question what we're doing because it, shutting down the economy, dr- any draconian measures, abrogate, abrogations of constitutional rights in this country. You can't question it because we're acting in furtherance of saving lives. Yes, it's, you know, there are, it's a very contradictory movement that, that, you know, the modern elites or the woke elites or however we want to refer to them. This is a very contradictory movement. It's full of strange ideas and uh, again, I think that expresses its distance, its distance from ordinary society so that it becomes uh, very eccentric and very cut off and very uh, strange in the way that it views the world. And I think one of the curious things that's going on with COVID-19, as you, as you say, is this, um, is this unquestioning idea that we have to take this incredibly firm, extreme 
authoritarian action. We have to shut down the whole of society. We have to bring economic life to a standstill um, because if we don't, people will die. And there is no, because they are very lacking in intellectual curiosity or in, in intellectual depth, they won't even think about the consequences of what they are proposing and the, the unintended consequences. And, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It really is always worth remembering that. And I think um, the people who are now putting their heads above the parapet and saying, um, if we halt economic life for a long period of time, that will have severe health consequences too. That will have severe social consequences. And that could lead to death in the long term. They're not listening to that, and in fact, they're, they're tending to shout you down if you raise any of those practical problems. So very often with these left elites, it's all about the performance. It's the performance of their virtue. It's the performance of their um, apocalyptic wisdom. It's the performance of their superiority to the rest of us. And nothing can be allowed to get in the way of that performance. So any difficult fact, any contradictory fact, Anyone who raises their hand and says, listen, guys, is it possible you could be wrong, has to be shot down because they, can, they cannot tolerate any challenge to the performance of their, their virtue and their, and, and their wisdom over the rest of us. And that performance is in pursuit of what? It has to be political power, right? And their hypocrisy is yes. sort of is is sort of uh, exemplary of their privilege. Their their hypocrisy is what makes them them. I'm allowed to be a hypocrite because I'm me, and so uh, do, don't worry about the fact that I'm I'm saying it will do anything to save a life, even as I'm a misanthrope. Don't worry about the fact that I'm taking a huge economic hit too. But I don't care so long as I can attain more political power over who's ever left. It's absolutely about political authority. Political authority is now very often uh, presumed through this, uh, this sense of superiority over everyone else. And, and that's particularly the case for people who fail to achieve that at the ballot box. So if they fail to achieve political authority via the democratic means, which the vast majority of us think that's really the only way you should enjoy political power, um, they become even more intensive in their determination to demonstrate that they are better than us, that, that we are making the wrong choices, we are stupid, we are backward, and they have to come in with their performances to demonstrate how much they are superior to us in terms of morality and politics as, as they see it. And there's a real hypocrisy, and it's really coming to the fore in the COVID-19 crisis. So here in the UK, um, the, the economy has taken an unbelievable hit Huge numbers of working class families are losing their jobs. I know someone who is now not going to be able to buy the house he was planning to buy and which he had saved up for for a very long time because he's now using his savings. He no longer has a job. There are numerous, numerous stories like that. And then what we have is the kind of upper middle class people, mostly in the media classes and also in certain sections of the political classes, who just don't care about that, who just say, shut everything down, bring life to a standstill. This is the virtuous thing to do with no consideration of the consequences for ordinary working people. So that hypocrisy is really, really pronounced at the moment. And I am very concerned that our cure for COVID-19 could prove to be as problematic as the disease itself. And I think injecting that possibility into this discussion is a very important thing to do. And you did it very well. Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked Online. Check out his piece, The Luxury of Apocalypticism, which I will tweet out again. 
spike-online.com. He's also the author of the book Anti-Woke and Duty to Offend. Brendan O'Neill, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You take it on the run, baby. If that's the way you want it, baby. Then I don't want you Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Joe Biden trying to uh, reassert himself, remind people that he is uh, the presumptive Democrat nominee for president. He started on Monday with his daily briefing from his home. And uh, even though that's a, you know, a produced effort, scripted, prepared, uh, it didn't go great. Could have gone better. Uh, Joe Biden uh, several minutes in and um, losing his place or his concentration on the topic before him. Now we need the armed forces and the National Guard to help with hospital capacity, supplies, and logistics. We need to activate the Reserve Corps of doctors and nurses and beef up the number of responders dealing with the crush, these crush of cases. And, uh, and in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, we have to uh, make sure that we, uh, we are in a position that we are... Well, let me let me go to the second thing. I've spoken up on that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then he losing his place in terms of which century he's in. Here's the deal. We have to do what we did in the 40s and the 20s, the 2020s. And we can do that. Uh, OK, so that was Monday. And then he decided on Tuesday to make the rounds to uh, various talk shows to uh, continue opining, uh, leveraging that wonderful briefing he did on Monday for people to consume. Uh, so started over at The View, uh, asked by Whoopi, number one concern, number one, the ill, those uh, suffering loss of a family member, the economy. Number one thing I'm most concerned about, Whoopi, is misinformation. Mm-hmm. Listen to the scientists. Listen to the doctors. Listen to what they have to say. And I would respectfully suggest that you should have Dr. Fauci on a lot more than the president or anyone who's not an expert like Fauci laying out exactly what's going on. Oh, okay. Well, um, thanks, Joe. Um, That's what uh, they did yesterday, as we played early in the show, Anthony Fauci laying out what's going on with respect to hot spots versus dark spots, you know, places where there's significant viral outbreak versus those that are where there is not. Also, the. State of play with the clinical trials for prospective antivirals. That was Anthony Fauci, Joe, last night at the briefing. Oh, and by the way, here's Anthony Fauci on WMAL radio in Washington, D.C. yesterday morning, morning on the mall, the morning on the mall program, talking about people like Joe Biden and his enablers in the D.C. press corps trying to create a rift between Dr. Fauci and President Trump. It seems like increasingly a bunch of the questions from the media are designed to create a rift between you and the president of the United States, or at least to sort of emphasize differences of opinion in a way uh, that, you know, creates distance between you and the president. Are you sensing that as the media continually asks you questions about the differences you have with him? That, that is really unfortunate. I, I would wish that that would stop. Because we have a much bigger problem here uh, than trying to point out differences. They're really fundamentally at the core. When you look at things, there are not differences. The president has listened to what I have said and what the other people on the task force have said. 
when I've made recommendations, he's taken them. He's never countered or overridden me. The idea of just pitting one against the other is just not helpful. I wish that would stop and we'd look ahead at the challenge we have to pull together to get over this thing. Does that help, Joe? How about you, a man-hating shrews on The View? Does that help? Does that clear the matter up? Uh, in addition to his comments at last night's briefing. Uh, does that address the Where's Tony Fauci hashtag campaign on Twitter? We all clear now? Oh, good. Now we can return to The View and this instant classic from Joe Biden. Concerned, as Trump said, that we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself? We have to take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. For emphasis, he's making a strong point there. We have to take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse no matter what. No matter what. Stop yelling. That will take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse. Lucid. Important. No follow-up from The View. I guess he's speaking viewees because they're the only ones who understood it. Then he went on MSNBC, and that was uncomfortable. Nobody knows who should talk when. We should be we should be making those masks. We should be moving on those ventilators. We can do that. Why doesn't Mm -hmm. he just act like a president? That's a stupid way to say it. You know, Donald Trump was asked. No, you go. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Probably best I don't. Yeah, probably best I don't go on. In so many ways, it's probably best. Don't you think, Joe? Uh, But he continued. He persisted and uh, was on with Jake Tapper, and then he got scolded by his grandson. I have not talked to any individual. (laughs) Excuse me. You know, you're supposed to cough into your elbow. I don't know, sir. I learned that actually covering your White House. No, actually, actually, that's true. But fortunately, I'm alone in my home. But that's okay. All right. I, I agree. You're right. You should just, it's, just, it's kind of old school to do it with your hand. Do it into your elbow. You're supposed to do it. Um, Thank you. Let me, <laughs> Boy, it's, uh, it's tough times when you can't even get a friendly audience at CNN. They're doing their best, you know, doing the best to prop them up on MSNBC, on The View, on CNN. It's just too much weight. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, last two days with his briefing on Monday and his... Uh, his appearances on the talk shows on Tuesday, I'll tell you one thing it's accomplishing. It's uh, ratcheting up the talk about uh, presidential nominee Andrew Cuomo in Democrat circles. That's one thing that he accomplished. I don't know that he's helping his candidacy very much. Uh, Speaking of the press, uh, Tony Fauci addressed it there, uh, both for the press as well as for uh, the Democrats, their official candidates, the press-endorsed candidates to Joe Biden. Uh, Did you see this ridiculous story out of Arizona? An Arizona man has died and his wife is in critical condition after they ingested chloroquine chloroquine, uh, phosphate, an aquarium cleaning product, similar to drugs that have been named by President Trump as potential treatments for COVID-19. The couple in their 60s experienced immediate distress after swallowing uh, aquarium cleaning products. Imagine that. Uh, the uh, husband died and the wife is in critical condition. The wife, though, telling NBC that uh, Trump and all his buddies were saying this was uh, a safe drug. She's blaming Trump. And, of course, NBC aired that ridiculousness. 
there's a sort of a fun thread that developed out of this and the media coverage, like BuzzFeed, for example. Of course, taking it at face value. Man died after self-medicating with a drug Trump promoted as a potential treatment for the coronavirus. Not an aquarium cleaning product form, BuzzFeed, obviously. The clinical trials are going on in New York as of yesterday. Should we stop them because of BuzzFeed's reporting and this woman's accusation? How embarrassing are these people? Be clowning themselves, the, uh, those with uh, blind hatred of Trump, and I emphasize blind as well as hatred. And, uh, of course, that would include most in the D.C. press corps as well. But uh, a fun thread on Twitter where people are openly wondering if this was not a way to off her husband, like this is a Law & Order episode, a way to off her husband, take a little bit herself but not, not a lethal dose, and then uh, blame Trump to get the media off on the, the Trump angle, maybe law enforcement too for that matter. I mean, so ridiculous, the depths that people will sink. They're finding new bottoms each passing day. It's a lot. It's a lot to take down this president in this time and prop up Joe Biden as well. This is the Dan Proctor. Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, Larry Kudlow yesterday uh, pending the agreement that was ultimately reached on the uh, aid package in the Senate. Uh, was asked, uh, well, if the president is uh, putting uh, April 12th, Easter weekend, down as a marker for us to return to something approximating normalcy when it comes to economic activity, then why the need for the uh, $2 trillion aid package? Actually, $6 trillion, as Larry pointed out. There's the $2 trillion on the fiscal side and the six, uh, $4 trillion on the monetary side. And uh, Kudlow explained... Uh, why both are needed. If we can target zones where uh, the virus is uh, less prevalent, things are safe, we're not abandoning the uh, health uh, professional's advice, but there is a clamor to try to reopen the economy and perhaps I'll call it less of a shut-in. And uh, so that's one piece that's yet to be determined, but it's one piece that's being looked at. We, we still going to need the assistance because... In the next week or two or three, you're still going to have a lot of hot zones. You're still going to lot of have shut-ins. There's no miracle here. We're not just, you know, flipping a switch. So the assistance is so vital. Let me tell you, you know, it's $2 trillion program and $4 trillion of lending power from the Fed. That's a $6 trillion package. And by the way, the Fed can't act fully unless we pass phase two because phase two contains the uh, increase in the exchange stabilization fund which is the equity piece for the Fed lending uh, so that we, the U.S. government is the guarantor, not the Fed. So those two packages go together. Six trillion, by the way, is about a, almost a third of the economy. It's a very big number and covers, as you know, small businesses, payrolls, unemployment, and so forth. So we need that. We need, we need that, and that, in effect, will hopefully, perhaps the word is bolster or maintain the economy. The size of this is unprecedented, but perhaps the um, the uh, kind is not. The kind of actions being taken really are not. For, to get a little bit of a historical context to this, 
We're pleased to be joined by Christopher Shaw, who's author, historian, and policy analyst. Ph.D. in history from UC Berkeley. He's the author of Money, Power, and the People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic. Christopher Shaw, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, with respect to the $4 trillion that uh, Larry Kudlow is talking about um, and uh, that and 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 the $400 billion uh, that is going to be poured from the Treasury into the Fed's Exchange Stabilization Fund, uh, what, what kind of precedent do we have for this sort of of monetary rescue or the monetary piece of it being part of, of the rescue? I think this is looking pretty unprecedented. I mean, we don't have the text right now. We don't know exactly what's going on. But this is already much larger than the whole bailout of the banks got uh, during the Great Recession after, you know, 2008. So it's already bigger than that. So this is very big, and uh, I think we are in uncharted waters. I and mean, what the Fed's doing is just uh, huge here, and it's kind of like the Fed is sort of becoming a, a bank itself uh, rather than being a, more of a central bank. It's actually just the way it's lending. It's serving as a backstop for all kinds of money markets and uh, credit uh, in all different directions. So this is uh, definitely something new. And uh, there's even a talk, although it's been um... – I mean, it, it, well, it's being argued. I mean, there's talk of it's not included here, but the talk of uh, federal government getting into the business of buying equities to prop up the stock market. And um, that didn't work out terribly well in Japan, as the Wall Street Journal opined. But but it seems to me the problem is and why you have proposals like that is the Fed is running out of tools as in a in an era of virtually zero interest rates. And after a decade of quantitative easing. Yeah, the Fed just doesn't have um, that many new things it can do. So it's trying out everything it can do. I mean, it's throwing in the whole kitchen sink. A lot of people thought after its initial round that it did last week that it had done everything it could do. And then this week, now they, they're coming up with a, a new set of things. So uh, it seems that uh, desperation leads to creativity. And uh, the Fed is responding in kind uh, with all kinds of new ideas. The Fed is getting, is getting very, very creative in this uh, crisis we're having right now. When we come back with uh, Christopher Shaw, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the Fed, which he has written about uh, extensively, uh, and uh, some of the different approaches in different economic crises that have been taken by different administrations throughout American history. I'm talking to Christopher Shaw, author, historian, policy analyst. His book, Money, Power, and the People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic. Back with more. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. with Christopher Shaw, author, historian, policy analyst, a PhD in history from UC Berkeley. He's the author of the book, Money, Power, and the People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic. 
Uh, just trying to, to, again, do some comparisons, even though this moment is uh, difficult to do apples to apples to throughout other moments of financial distress in American history. But uh, Amity Schles uh, wrote about uh, a different approach that the federal government took uh, uh, in the 1920s, a uh, decade before the recession, which was uh, when there was the prospect of a recession coming on. They actually moved to raise interest rates and cut government spending um, and reduce taxation rather than uh, some of what has been done in more recent uh, uh, financial crises, including this one now, which is massive Keynesian demand-side infusions, uh, both from the Fed as well as from the federal government. Yeah, so in, uh, right after World War I, uh, 1920, 1921, there was a severe, uh, pretty severe, sharp uh, depression that uh, we don't remember very very well. And it was largely uh, caused by the Fed. This is when the Fed is just getting going. I mean, the Fed had just got up and running in 1914. They really didn't know how to use their monetary tools that well. And so uh, Milton Friedman uh, basically described it as, uh, you know, the Fed saw some inflation. It didn't notice this until too late. And then when it did, it slammed on the brakes too hard. And then it left the brakes on for too long. So then when the Fed finally started easing up and uh, letting the money supply expand uh, in 1921, that depression came to an end uh, pretty quickly. So that was an example of the Fed, um, through mistaken policy, causing the depression and then figuring it out eventually and, and curing it. Um, so that's what happened right after World War One. Well, right. And, and then uh, into the Great Depression, of course, uh, 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 Milton Friedman wrote a book about this, the, the uh, uh, Fed deepening the Great Depression and extending it in his mind. And I wonder, looking back at Fed policy there and the arguments that Friedman advanced, among others, if uh, you see us uh, remaking some of the same mistakes. Well, I think um, the main mistake that happened in the early 1930s after the, the Great Crash of 1929 and this big economic slide begins where unemployment is going up and economic activity is going down and it's just going on for years, dragging on that way, is that the Federal Reserve didn't really have a concerted plan as to what to do. Um, sometimes it's wanting to uh, maintain higher interest rates and then it made some half-hearted attempts to expand the money supply, but basically you have the money supply fall by a third uh, or so between 1929 and 1933. And this really fed into a deflationary spiral. And when you have deflation, what you have is people start postponing purchases. They don't want to buy things because they're hoping that the price will go down. When they do that, then this means that uh, stores and shops are selling less goods. This means that you're getting less orders uh, to manufacturers. They start cutting people's hours. They start laying people off. Wages go down. It becomes this really vicious uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. So what you needed to have at that time was to have uh, the money supply expanded, um, and that is not what happened. So that was a real misstep on the part of the, the Fed, and it's something that's definitely very much in the mind of Federal Reserve System policymakers these days. Um, and was certainly in mind in uh, 2008, um, explicitly so, uh, when they're looking at uh, what to do and how to handle uh, these uh, crises that we're living through through today. Take us uh, all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century uh, after uh, 
William Jennings Bryan famously would not be crucified on a, uh, crucified on a upon a cross of gold, uh, arguing against the gold standard. And uh, as you write in your piece at Harper's, uh, wanting money to be controlled by officials responsible to the people and not sort of the uh, the the titans of finance and how that informed the ultimate uh, creation of this, the central banking and policy emanating therefrom. One thing that people often sort of forget is that the Fed is a political institution. It makes decisions that have uh, ramifications for us all, and, you know, there's winners and there's losers. So it's very political, and you can see this in its origins. And the Fed came into being in uh, 1913 when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, and there was really two competing sides here. One, uh, William Jennings Bryan was probably the leader in those uh, negotiations, and he wanted the Fed to be very much explicitly political. He wanted um, a central bank to be one that would be accountable uh, to the people. Um, and this is why he insisted on having no bankers uh, choosing who would serve on the Federal Reserve Board and instead have the uh, members of the, what is today, the Board of Governors be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. On the other side, against him, you had uh, the bankers, especially uh, Wall Street bankers, who've been pushing harder than any other group of bankers for a uh, central bank. They wanted the Fed to be an institution that they would own, that they would operate, and they would also appoint the leadership of it, so they would control it as well. And so this led to this kind of private-public uh, settlement that we have where the Federal Reserve Banks are privately owned. Bankers um, control and sort of run the Federal Reserve Banks themselves. Because, uh, you know, there's 12 Federal Reserve Banks that are combined together to make the Federal Reserve System. But then the Federal Reserve System is overseen by a board of uh, political, political appointees. Um, so that is the political origins of the Federal Reserve, and certainly it has been... Uh, political, um, you know, ever, ever since. He is Christopher Shaw, author, historian, policy analyst, a Ph.D. in history from UC Berkeley. The book, Money, Power, and the People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic. Christopher Shaw, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. back to the Dan Prof show and uh, these are heavy shows that uh, we're doing and so we've tried to intersperse some uh, inspirational music and uh, a little bit of humor too nothing wrong with that it's a human thing 
again, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, let's do human things and be human beings during this crisis. And so a little gallows humor from Norm MacDonald. This is a Norm MacDonald, who's a funny, funny guy, at the improv earlier in March before there were all the uh, shelter in place and uh, orders and, uh, of course, bars and restaurants and uh, whatnot being shut down. I don't want to alarm anybody at all, but I could uh, sneeze on you. <laughs> and it would be the equivalent of a, like a nine millimeter. Yeah. I went to die. I don't know this medical gobbledygook. You know, I can't understand it. I'm not a doctor. But he said I'm more virus than host. <laughs> Who knows what these guys mean? Other big words. Who knew it was going to end this way? I thought it was going to be a fucking. Uh, Big uh, iceberg or something. Iceberg. <laughs> Sounded fun for a while. It's like, oh, the oceans will rise in a big iceberg. Oh, God. <laughs> Not like your kid. <coughs> oh, f***ing. <laughs> 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 blood. Uh, I got to phone 911. I got the coronavirus. Don't come here. <laughs> Stay at home. I'm gonna... You can't have bad thoughts, you know, you gotta have positive feelings because that, uh, those don't work either. I mean, who knows how you're gonna die? I mean, we all know now, but think back a week ago, think back a week ago. I love back a week ago. And uh, this note from Chicago, one of the distilleries uh, that's uh, DPAing themselves, you know, many of the distillers around the country that are going from uh, making alcohol to making hand sanitizer. One is CH Distillery in Chicago. It makes this liquor called Malort, which is, sort of has a cult following in Chicago because it's so bad. In point of fact, I would rather consume hand sanitizer than Malort. Let me give you a, 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 just sort of a sense of this. Uh, at this uh, dinner I go to monthly, for, you know, refined gentlemen such as myself, uh, Coat and tie required. If you don't show up in a coat and tie, then you have to do a shot of Malort as punishment. As uh, one, uh, one person said about Malort, uh, it doesn't cure coronavirus, but it tastes like it should. <laughs> That's how bad it is. Thanks for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Be well. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.